Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Uh, so my name is Dr. Sebastian Mafud. I am a lay Dominican of the province of St. Albert the Great. And um, that is here uh, uh, in St. Louis. We have a local chapter, uh, the um, chapter of the uh, Holy Rosary. And uh, we meet once every uh, month, the very first Sunday. At least we used to back in the days before social distancing at um, the St. Dominic Priory out on uh, Lafayette. So uh, I welcome anybody if they'd like to come when we resume our meetings. Um, in addition, uh, what we've been doing, at least for the last meeting, is uh, meeting via Zoom, so just like this. So uh, uh, email me. Uh, you've got my email address on the syllabus that was passed around. Week one, we're going to do an overview of Dante's Cosmos. Um, and uh, discuss the spiritual stagnation that can only be resolved through our relationship with the Holy Trinity and the pathway that Mary, our Blessed Mother, helps provide. So that's today's. We'll show the framework, and then we'll, um, uh, we'll work over the next five weeks uh, following today on the various canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. So uh, we are in an exciting time right now in Dante's studies. We're at the 700th anniversary of the publication or the completion in the year 2020 of the Paradiso. And next year, we're going to be in the 700th anniversary of uh, Dante's death. He died in the year 1321. Uh, but let us begin with um, an introduction to our guest today, uh, who's going to lead us in prayer. Uh, Father Aaron Agorsor is the author of a book entitled Jesus's Ministry of Liberation, A Companion After the Year of Mercy, that was published uh, this past week by Enroute Books and Media. Uh, Father Aaron is a priest of the Catholic Archdiocese of Accra, Ghana, in West Africa. He is currently a PhD student of English literature at Arizona State University. As a graduate assistant, he teaches first-year writing or composition and assists at um, Arizona State's affiliated All Saints Catholic Newman Center, where he administers to students from diverse backgrounds. He is passionate about his ministry as a priest, and he is an excellent writer. Uh, so his experience of God's tremendous mercy overwhelms him, and he wishes to let the whole world know that God's mercy endures forever. And uh, that is the reason why he produced this book, Jesus' Ministry of Liberation. And he's going to talk with us today uh, about the theme of today's class, which is divine mercy, uh, which is. Um, an important thing to discuss as we move toward Divine Mercy Sunday. So with that, uh, Father Aaron, if you will, lead us in prayer and then um, uh, give uh, the presentation that you have uh, prepared for us. Let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come to know you and to love you. We pray that you pour the oil of your mercy upon us and saturate us and call us to holiness again. Especially in this challenging time of the corona pandemic, in which 
there are so many conspiracy theories bothering our minds and challenging our hope, we pray that you turn our hearts to your word. Because your prophets of old did this for the people of Israel. That in our moment of adversity, in our moment of challenges, we'll find solace in your word. Increase our faith in you again. And bless us with new hope, new grace. We ask all these through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. All right, so... Um, I decided to focus on chapter four of my book, which is entitled, The Name of God is Mercy. And in that chapter, I spent a little bit of a time explaining the four principles of divine mercy. You may have heard it before because Bishop Baron spoke about this when he addressed, preached in Rome during the year of mercy that Pope Francis declared in, in December 8th, on December 8th, 2015, um, the, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Um, I think we're almost in our fifth year when we celebrated the year of mercy. What, what I would like to begin with, first of all, is to look at the Greek etymology of the word mercy. In my research, this struck me for the first time as a priest ministering for, this is my eighth year of priestly ministry. And that is the etymology of the, of, of the Greek word mercy, Elios, E-L-E-O-S. If you go to the root word of Elios, it means oil that is poured. Oil that is poured. And in the liturgy, in the mass, at the beginning, the priest invites us to confess our sins. And sometimes we recite these words, Kiri Eleison. And so Elios is from Eleison, or Eleison is from Elios. And so whenever we recite Kiri Eleison, what we are saying is that God should pour his oil of mercy upon his children. So we are invoking the oil of God's mercy upon us. It, is, it was only when I started writing this book that Kiri Eleison became meaningful to me. So be conscious, anytime we recite, the Kiri, or we sing the Kiri. It is more deeper than Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It is God, pour your oil of mercy upon us. And this takes us to Psalm 133, where the psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. Aaron is a priest, and a priest is supposed to be an instrument of God's mercy. So there's a deep connection to that. And so re reflecting on the four principles of divine mercy, which I'll just name quickly. So the first principle of divine mercy is that it is relentless. Divine mercy is relentless. In other words, God's search for us is relentless. God does not give up in searching for us. So if you look at the Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus comes at the heat of the day, at 12 noon to seek out for this Samaritan woman. And I think the gospel writer situated this whole encounter within this context to make us understand that God is in search of us anytime, any day, even the most difficult circumstances. So apart from the fact that Jesus was there at noon, 
there was also issue of social or racial barrier. Know that Jews and Samaritans have nothing in common. The Jews looked down upon them because when the Assyrians conquered Samaria, they intermarried with them. And so there was a misblood. And that is how Samaria, the West Samaritan became up. And so Samaritans have nothing to do with Jews because the Jews looked down upon them. They are, they are, they are not 100% Jews. So it was a non-starter for Jesus to even go to sit at the well of this Samaritan woman. Remember in one of the Gospels, when the disciples, together with Jesus, wanted to pass through Samaritan, the Samaritan towns, because it was shorter to go to other districts, they would not allow them to pass through. And, and James and John asked Jesus, can we call down fire to destroy these people? The name Boenagis, that's where they got the name Boenagis from, you know, the son of tender, you know, sons of tender. So there was, there was a non, the non-starter is that Jesus had no business in that region. The third issue has to do with gender stereotype. This was a woman. What would Jesus be doing with this woman? Above all, she was an adulterous woman. So there were four barriers. One, he comes at the heat of the day. He was thirsty. Two, he comes to a Samaritan woman, non-starter. Three, she was a woman. What would a man be talking to a woman at that time for what reason? Four, there was issue of the fact that the woman was a sinner and a doctor. So what would Jesus be doing with her? And that's why the disciples came back there waving surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman. So that is how God goes in search of us. And Jesus would gradually lead this woman to conviction. She would be convicted of her sins without even knowing it. In fact, this is one of the Gospels that, the Gospels of conversion that Jesus patiently dealt with the sinner. Patiently. And I'm using dealt loosely to mean that he had patience in, in dealing with the woman's sins from the beginning to the end until the woman was convicted. Jesus did not say, you are an adulterous woman. He started, give me water to drink. And then this woman raised issues of race. He raised issue of worship. And then Jesus was, was going gradually. So he asked her, I'll give you living water. And the woman says, I want that water. Then the gradual relationship built up until the woman broke down. When Jesus says, drop your bucket and go and call your husband. So if you look at the patience with which Jesus worked on this woman till her conversion, it reemphasizes the fact that the divine mercy is relentless. It never gives up. So for us, too, we must drop our buckets. There are moments we are enjoying sin for the first time. It looks appealing. Jesus says, drop your buckets and allow the divine life in you again and begin afresh. So that is what it means when we say divine mercy is relentless. The second principle is that divine mercy is demanding. It makes a demand on us. And the demand is that we must participate in the conversion process. There cannot be true reconciliation without admission of fault. The woman must admit that she had no husband. For Jesus to tell her that, yes, you are right, even the, the fifth one who is with you is not your husband. We must reconcile with God by acknowledging that we are sinners. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 51, a, a humble and a contrite heart, O God, you will not spend. So there is always a demand also on the sinner to allow the divine life in. Without it, it's not possible. So divine mercy makes a demand on us too. 
Bishop Byron calls that a vibrant paradox. <laughs> you know, a vibrant paradox because if we believe that God's mercy is, is relentless and God's mercy is available to us, does that mean that we can do anything and still assess his mercy? But there's also an added responsibility. The sinner must acknowledge that he's a sinner, must know that he needs mercy. That is why it is a paradox. So divine mercy is available to us, but we have our part to play to experience that mercy. The third principle is that divine mercy is divinizing. By virtue of we being created in the image and likeness of God, each and every one of us possesses divine life. When, when the, the Bible, the Genesis story says, and God breathed into man and man became a living being, that breath of God is the divine life that God gave man at creation. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that divine life was threatened. And so if you read the Bible carefully, in Genesis 3, God made a promise to humanity that the offspring of this woman shall crush your head, shall crush the head of the serpent. So right there in the Garden of Eden, God set out to redeem humanity. And the church is convinced that that woman is the blessed mother. And her offspring is Jesus Christ, who will crush the head of the serpent. And so when people argue that why would God even allow sin in the first place, I tell them, that's why we sing in the Exuted. Oh, what a, oh, what happy fault. A necessary sin of Adam. So it was a happy fault. Because God provided the remedy immediately. So in order to restore the, the, the divine life to humanity again, God sent his son to die for us. And so that by virtue of our baptism, that divine life is given back to us. We are configured with Christ. We are buried with him. And a new life spring from us again, or from him to us again. And it is not enough. Because human as we are, we sin even after baptism. And so the Lord made provision for the sacrament of reconciliation. And so whenever you sin and you go to confession, you are restored to that baptismal grace again. So constantly, the divine life is being infused in us. That is why the parable of the merciful father, what we call the parable of the prodigal son, when the young man came back to his senses, he returned home. So the divine life, can never be even be destroyed by sin. No, I believe strongly. This is my personal opinion. Nobody can destroy the divine life in us. No matter the weight of your sin, there remains in each and every one of us a speck of that divine life. All we need to rekindle that speck is to go to confession, is to acknowledge that we are sinners. And then we are reconnected again to that divine source. And so when that young man came back to his senses, and decided to go to his father's house, that divine life was littered again. And so when he got back to his father, his father embraced him. That embrace was a sign that, look, my son, that divine life is given to you freely. You are still a son of the home. You can't be a servant. You are restored. It was as if the young man came back with a reward. The way the father welcomed him. Meanwhile, he came back a destitute. If you read uh, St. Augustine's, you know, um, he came back and God was kinder. When he should have been punished, his father was kinder. That's the exact word St. Augustine used in his confessions. 
you know. So that is how divinized we are. And the mercy of God always restores that divine life in each and every one of us. So nobody should give up on sin. Whenever you realize you are, in the state, you are not in the state of grace, run for the sacrament because that is how we are restored. And I tell people that if we want to demonstrate one practical way by which we have won victory over, the, over, the, of, over Satan, over sin, it is through the sacrament of reconciliation. That is one practical way because the moment you go to confession, your life is restored, divine life restored to you again to build your relationship with the Lord. Um, f- um, if you look at the story of the, the, the good shepherd, you know, the hundred sheep he took to pasture and one God lost. He, he left the 91 in the desert in search of one. It doesn't make sense. This defies logic. What about if you come back and the 99 are dispersed? But he leaves the 99 in search of that single one. For me, what it means is that divine mercy defies logic. Divine mercy is there for the vulnerable. Those who give Jesus the toughest problems, those are the ones he goes after. And, and for me, it's very consoling. The, the, the converse is true for us. We are not kind to one another. When somebody is a sinner, the way we even describe and, and deal with such people, we are, not, we are not nice to them at all. We condemn them. But those are the people the Lord wants. Finally, he says, divine mercy is a summons to, 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 to mission. Divine mercy sends us on mission. When the Samaritan woman had encountered Jesus, having come to know that he's the Messiah, she could not keep this joy to herself. She ran to the town to tell the folks, the village folks, that she's met the Messiah. She became a witness. So every sinner is a potential witness. It's a potential witness to Jesus Christ. Because in Latin we say, nemo dat cod non habet. You cannot give what you don't have. It is those who have, who have experienced mercy who can talk about mercy, who can bear authentic witness to mercy. And that is why the highest prayer of the church, the Mass, it does not end until the priest says, Ite misa est. Go, the Mass is ended. Go bear witness with your life. We are sent out on mission. And so I tell people that, look, I thank God I'm Catholic because we don't spend so much time in church. Because the bulk of the work is out there, not in the church. On the streets, in our offices, in our workplaces, in our schools, whatever we find ourselves. That is where our faith is tested. And that is where the bulk of the work is. If Christianity is all that we are seeing, people dress beautifully and come to church, and receive communion and go back home like that, then Christianity is very cheap. But we, we, it is not cheap because somebody shed his blood. We cannot but bear authentic witness to mercy. And for us Catholics, our tradition is simply this. What we have come to experience at Mass is the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we are called to bear authentic witness to because this is what we have come to experience. This is what we have come to partake of. This is what we are sent on mission to tell the world, that God still loves the world, that there is hope for the world, that that divine mercy is God's life, divine life in the hearts of each and every one of us. Thank you, all of you. God bless you. Hope to see you again. We just uh, talked about um, uh, the year of mercy with Father Aaron Agorsar. And we're about to jump into uh, something that is particularly relevant for our times, 
uh, which is a discussion of the end times, uh, namely uh, Dante's uh, cosmos and his eschatological vision uh, that is um, directly drawn uh, from scholasticism. So I call Dante a narrativization of the um, of St. Thomas Aquinas, of the Aristotelian Thomistic synthesis. <clears throat> so I'm going to jump for a moment uh, just to give you a resource, and you may already have it. Um, I didn't get around to finishing it until um, this weekend, uh, uploading the uh, paperback copy, and Amazon's running slow because they're currently engaged in um, uh, shipping medical supplies, which, uh, God bless them, that's more important than shipping my book, for sure. So uh, the publisher of this is Enroute Books and Media. About five years ago, I didn't have something to do one evening, and I thought, well, I'll start a publishing house. Uh, five years later, I have published 126 uh, books by about 65 or 70 different authors. And um, uh, every now and then I get to publish a book that I've written, and that is this one here, uh, which I'm using as the uh, text for this course, you're able to get it. You don't have to use this one, but it's got all my commentaries. Uh, there are lots of excellent translations of Dante's Divine Comedy out there, and many of them have come out in the past 10 or so years, and uh, largely to do with the, in celebration of the 700th anniversary. This particular translation that I'm using is by a guy named Arthur John Butler, he uh, put this translation out in the late 1800s, so it was within the public domain. Uh, so I was able to easily grab it and integrate it into this book as the translation on which my, um, that would be paired with my lectures. It ended up uh, th with this book's being 585 pages, and I decorated it with all of the illustrations by Gustave Doré. So uh, that's the, the nature of this book. If you want my lectures uh, just as an audio format, go to YouTube, type my name, Mafud in Dante, and uh, you'll see that I've created 100 uh, short videos, um, out of which I drew the lecture material to uh, populate this book. So every time you read a canto, uh, you can see the art from Dore, and you can read my lecture and my uh, short reflection, and then there's a question for reflection that follows uh, for students. So it's a 100-day guided journal. If you do one canto a day, and I know we only have six weeks in this class, uh, so you might double up. Uh, if you do one canto a day, you're done in 100 days. So um, I got the idea from a good friend of mine, Rhonda Chervin, who likes to do 100-day um, adventures. So, um, but this is the book. This is the resource we're using. Um, and this is the... Um, uh, is there, um, Lucas has just asked, is there a version of the Divine Comedy that's not in Old English? Uh, the Old English uh, that you're seeing um, uh, for this book is, uh, is 1890, um, which is uh, kind of like Dickens. <laughs> I don't know if that's Old English. Um, but yeah, uh, there's Anthony Esselin's um, uh, translation. That's really excellent. Anthony's a friend of mine, at least a, a social media friend. And uh, there is, um, as well, uh, John Chiardi's. Now, John Chiardi is the uh, one that I originally read back in 1990 when I first entered, um, I first registered for my first Dante course. Um, it was at the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, Dr. Simone Turbeville was teaching the class. 
And uh, by midpoint in the semester, I was hooked on literature. I went down to the, um, uh, my advisor and I added English as a major. Uh, I was already a history major at the time, so I ended up double majoring. And um, uh, largely because I fell in love with the poetry. I fell in love with uh, the uh, concepts that were able to be expressed through literature. Uh, it was an English translation of Dante that made me, uh, turned me into an English major. Um, and yes, uh, I see Martin uh, said that he loves the Chiardi translation. Uh, that I love it too for its footnotes. And um, if you pay attention to the footnotes, Chiardi, though a Protestant, is very uh, prescient uh, in terms of um, his ability to get his mind around what Dante is, uh, is promoting. And um, if you look at Canto 19, for instance, of the uh, Inferno, let me switch screens real quick. Uh, not of the Inferno, of the Paradiso. Uh, Chardy says that Dante intimates that all of those souls in limbo will get to go to the Garden of Eden after the general resurrection. So they won't be in heaven, but they'll at least be in a place where God walked. And that addresses a significant objection uh, that a lot of my students have when they get to that point and say, wait a second, why would Virgil have to go all the way back to hell? you know, uh, after he leads uh, Dante all the way up to the Garden of Eden. And let's start talking about uh, this. This is where we are. This is, um, this is Dante's entire cosmos. This is a map by uh, Catani uh, from 1855. So there's, uh, there's more old English, at least old artwork. So uh, this shows you the whole cosmos. This is our journey over the next six weeks. And uh, to give you a sense of where the journey begins, it begins right here at the very bottom. You can see my cursor, I think. At the very bottom of um, the map, uh, which is the entryway into hell. And uh, Dante finds himself lost in a dark wood. And I'll talk about what that dark wood is. That's the subject of today's talk, actually, um, in a moment uh, when we move through the maps. Uh, that dark wood um, is where he meets Virgil. And Virgil explains to him, hey, I can get you out of here, but in order to get you out of here, I gotta take you the long way. I gotta take you all the way through hell and up through uh, Mount Purgatory. And I'm gonna deliver you when I'm done to Beatrice. He says, um, in order to comfort Dante, uh, I have to tell you that it's not by my own power that I'm leading you out of here. Uh, it is by the power of um, the Blessed Virgin herself. Mary heard your prayer. Because Dante said, oh, you know, I'm in trouble here. I need some help. Mary sends St. Lucy to go to, who's the um, patron uh, saint of light and, uh, and blindness, to go to uh, Beatrice and say to Beatrice, look, uh, the guy knew you on earth. Would you go down there and... Um, and get Virgil to help him. So Beatrice goes down and finds Virgil, with whom Dante has been uh, engaged in a, a rather intense uh, form of study ever since finishing La Vita Nuova. And La Vita Nuova was a love poetry, a love poem he wrote to Beatrice uh, during the tail end of her life and continued it after she died until he finally finished it in about 1295. Now, there's something I'll tell you about later, and I can mention it now, and that is uh, the entire time Dante's pining over uh, Beatrice, he's married to a woman named Gimma Donati. And uh, 
Gemma uh, was not too pleased with the fact that Dante kept uh, raving on about a dead girl who never gave him the time of day. And we find this in some letters uh, that are purported to have been uh, left behind by Gemma, uh, letters that she had written to her mother. So uh, I'll share those with you as well. And those are uh, in translation in uh, moderately uh, contemporary English. I think they were discovered in the early um, 20th century. So Dante starts off here, and Virgil leads him all the way through hell, up uh, this trail, uh, which is the hell ends at the center point of the earth, and uh, Satan is down there, up this trail into purgatory, up the entire mountain of purgatory, uh, to Beatrice, Virgil disappears, and then Beatrice carries Dante all the way into the mind of God, which is at the top of this map. That's our journey. Uh, it breaks down for you in some other maps uh, that you can find. If you go to Google and put in Dante Comedy or Dante's Inferno or whatever, and you put in maps, you'll see things like this. Uh, this is one map that shows the, the different divisions of hell, which we'll be talking about. Um, hell has nine circles, and each circle, uh, in each circle is um, a state of existence of a particular kind of center. So it's a, it's a taxonomy, uh, if you will. So those who are lustful are in the second circle of hell, and they're all gathered together like birds of a feather. Those who are gluttonous are in the third circle of hell, and they're all gathered together. And if you look at the vices uh, that are traditional vices, um, which are pride, envy, uh, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Those are the seven vices that uh, we know are um, uh, things that we ought to avoid. Those vices are captured in here, in, uh, in these nine circles of hell, in inverse order. So lust is the least of the sins. Uh, and it comes out of something Aristotle said. He said that um, in his metaphysics, uh, all men desire to know as evidenced by the delight they take in their senses. And the most um, important of these senses is sight, because it helps us understand the difference between things. And so it's natural for us to lay our eyes upon creation and find creation pleasing in our eye. It's that uh, point of laying our eyes on creation and on finding it pleasing uh, that we sometimes get into trouble. Uh, you remember Christ said, anyone who looks upon a woman uh, with uh, lust is the same as committing adultery with her. You know, he interiorizes the external act. And then John Paul II, in his theology of the body, even may, uh, extended it further. He said, if you look upon your own wife in lust, you've committed adultery with her. Uh, and the, it has to do with reducing uh, the human person who is creating the image and likeness of God into a thing, into an object, or the objectification of the human person. We tend to. Uh, we tend to map ourselves onto creation and lose sight of our creator. And you see this in the Paradiso, in the third sphere of heaven, when Dante meets Kunitsa. And Kunitsa was a woman who had a lot of lovers, a lot of husbands. She was like the woman at the well. And one day, as she's with her lover, she looks through the lover and sees within the creature his creator. And she never goes back. She then realizes 
that her true pursuit in life, the happiness that she's been seeking, is in the creator, not in any creation. And um, after that, she uh, is redeemed. So it's uh, far different from, uh, say, somebody like um, Graham Greene, who was traveling through Europe with his mistress and had the opportunity to meet Padre Pio. And at the last minute, after waiting for a long time for Padre Pio to show up, he chickened out and left. And somebody said, well, you know, Padre Pio was almost there. Why'd you leave? And Graham Greene said, well, I knew that this man could change me. And I like myself just the way I am. If you don't like yourself just the way you are, then you seek God's grace and you seek God's mercy. And that's uh, the reason why I asked Father Aaron to come and speak with us today to talk about divine mercy. If you die in a state of sin in the Dante world, you go to hell. And uh, the reason why you go there is because God, God loves us much that he gives us what we want. And so hell is actually a manifestation of God's love. God allows us to be me. He allows us to like ourselves just the way we are. And in hell, uh, you find or you first learn about something called contrapasso. Contrapasso is most succinctly summed up in the seventh circle of hell, where Capanius says, what I was in life, I am now dead. The state of existence in which you, you are in, in which you die, is the state of existence in which you will persist for all eternity. And there are only two states of existence. There's the state of sin, and there's the state of grace. If you die in the state of grace, and you're not yet ready to see God, because you are, uh, still have a great deal of vice through which you're working, then God gives you the gift of purgatory, which is an opportunity to fill yourself with the virtues that correspond to the vices that you have. If you've read the Nicomachean Ethics, you know that um, Aristotle talked all about these vices. He talked about lust, he talked about gluttony, he talked about avarice, and he showed that a lot of these, these vices have counterparts. He didn't talk so much about the counterparts of lust and gluttony because he said that's simply an excess of pleasure in the, in the, in the creative thing. People generally don't uh, run away from those pleasures. They are more likely to embrace them. Now, had he been writing today, he would have said, well, you know, anorexia would be, uh, would be the opposite of gluttony. And um, anhedonia uh, would be the opposite of lust. But he didn't have those terms. Uh, in his world, if there was a pleasure, people tended to pursue it rather than run away from it. Um, when you get to like uh, something like avarice, however, uh, you end up with um, an excess of love because that's what those first three are, lust and gluttony and um, avarice are an excess of love for the created thing, as opposed to the defects of love, uh, which you find in pride and envy and wrath. So um, avarice actually has two different uh, extremes. Um, there's the avarice that is of the hoarding kind, and there's the avarice that is of the, um, uh, there's the hoarding kind and there's the wasting kind. So what is the, what is the virtue? The virtue is found in the mean. That's what you've got in the Purgatorio. It's really not so much a mountain uh, where you've got seven ledges of vice, where you've got pride and envy and uh, avarice and um, sloth and um, pride and envy and wrath and sloth and avarice and gluttony and lust. It's more a mountain of virtue 
where the corresponding virtues, humility, which corresponds with pride, caritas, which corresponds with envy, meekness, which corresponds with wrath. Those are the virtues that these souls are filling themselves up with as they move up the mountain. And as they move up, they realize it becomes easier to get the next virtue. And the reason for that is virtues always harmonize. If you are a prideful person and you are struggling to realize a greater humility, stop working on struggling to realize a greater humility. Try to pursue meekness. If you can pursue the virtue of meekness and actually acquire that virtue, you're going to have an easier time when you go back to work on your humility. Your virtues correspond and harmonize with one another. Vices, on the other hand, war with one another. Well, am I going to be lustful? Am I going to eat this donut? You know, I just, I can't do both at the same time, but I'm going to do one and then the other. But, you know, they don't harmonize. Not that uh, a donut is necessarily a sign of gluttony, by the way, if anybody's actually eating a donut right now. Lastly, um, heaven. So once Dante meets Beatrice up the top of uh, Mount Purgatory in the Garden of Eden, Beatrice takes him and flies with him straight into the mind of God. They hit the moon sphere, they hit Mercury, they hit Venus, they go through the cosmos until they get to the Empyrean. And in the Empyrean, they meet the mind of God. So we'll talk about that later in terms of what it means to come into the mind of God. But importantly, let me uh, share with you the short presentation uh, that will probably uh, be over in 15 minutes. I'm, I think I've timed it right. Uh, that talks about divine mercy. And it's this um, concept uh, that uh, seals um, an understanding of Mary as the co-redemptrix. Mary shows up at the very beginning uh, in order to help Virgil find a way because she hears his prayer in the dark wood, help um, uh, Dante find a way out through Virgil, and then shows up at the very end. And she actually shows up all through the entire comedy. You'll see Mary in every canto. But at the very end, Dante uh, approaches her, led by St. Uh, Bernard de Clairvaux, uh, the mystic, he prays to Mary, and Mary lifts him up with her eyes into the mind of God. So it's through Mary that he's able to um, to come to Jesus, and uh, you can see uh, um, you can see that in our own understanding uh, that it's Mary that leads us to Christ. If you ever had trouble approaching uh, Christ uh, yourself because you think, "Oh, I've sinned so greatly." Uh, it'll be very difficult for me to go to reconciliation. Pray to Mary, pray your rosary, and you're going to realize that it's not so difficult to go to reconciliation and meet uh, with the Christ and persona, the priest and persona Christi, who will then forgive uh, through your uh, perfect uh, con uh, contrition, act of contrition, uh, enable your sins to be forgiven. I mean, it's that uh, easy. I know a lot of people when, uh, when I go to reconciliation, uh, there's uh, always people outside waiting their turn. And you can just tell they're trying to find a way to cast their sins in the best light. Well, you can't really cast your sins in a good light. So uh, just once you realize that, it's much easier just to walk in and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. This presentation is called Imagini di Benseguendo Fosse, C'è Nulla Promessione Quendono in Terra. And it's about the relationship between natural and divine law in Dante's Divine Comedy. And this is where Mary shines through.
what that translates into is this line, and you find it in the Purgatorio in Canto 30. And uh, all of my um, translated texts is from John Charity's translation. Pursuing the false images of good that promise what they never fully pay. That's when you invest uh, your effort in the creation and lose sight of the creator behind it. And we know that there's a creator because you can't have something that's created without someone who created it, especially if we're talking about people. There are six short parts to this presentation. The first part, uh, we see Dante lost in the dark wood. Second part, Dante meets Virgil. The third part, Dante meets Beatrice. The fourth is the nature of medieval uh, philosophy. Uh, the fifth is natural law. The sixth is divine law. And I, I said six, I think there's seven actually, um, if I count uh, what Beatrice's reprimand means for us. Now, when Dante's in the dark wood, he thinks he's lost. He can't get out. He sees a few beasts. There are symbols of uh, incontinence and of violence and of fraud. And he can't get his mind around what they are, nor can he get beyond them. That's when he lifts up his uh, mind in prayer. Because uh, when you come to the end of your rope, um, that's what you do. And suddenly somebody shows up named Virgil. And Virgil, when he, um, when he appears, uh, is the right person to appear. And here's why. Dante, when he recognizes who he is, says, glory and light of poets. Now may that zeal in love's apprenticeship that I poured out on your heroic verses serve me well. For you are my true master and first author. If you're reading this uh, in the same uh, words that I'm reading it in, you see here's the problem. He calls Virgil his true master and first author. Now when we get up to purgatory and Beatrice berates him, come back to this line. The soul maker from whom I drew the breath of that sweet style whose measures have brought me honor. And he's talking about uh, the Dolce uh, Stil Novo uh, that he talks to Casella about and to uh, Bonagionta de Luca uh, in the Purgatorio when he meets them. And that's basically the sweet new style is uh, defined as the introspective exaltation of female beauty as a bridge to the divine. So what he's doing is he's seeing through the creation to the creator. Uh, Bonagionta you know, will tell him, you know, if... Our new style was kind of like that, except we missed this um, this ability to see through the creation to the creator. And had we gotten that, we would have been a, a just a lot. Uh, one of the ways that Dante is demonstrating his actual pride, and he, he pokes fun at himself in the Purgatorio, which we'll find when he's on the second ledge and he's talking to Sapia. He says, you know, I'm really bothered by the fact that I may spend a lot of time on that ledge of pride below, that first ledge of Purgatory. And uh, sure enough, uh, who knows? So here's the path, St. Mary, St. Lucia, and St. Beatrice. These are the three ladies whom he invokes. Lucia says to Beatrice, Beatrice, true praise of God, why dost thou not help him who loved thee so, that uh, for thy sake he left the vulgar crowd? Dost thou not hear his cries? Canst thou not see the death he wrestles with beside that river? No ocean can surpass her rage and fury. Uh, so uh, basically, Dante is stuck in that dark wood. Lucia says to Beatrice, uh, Beatrice, uh, go down there and um, save him. And Beatrice is the right person to send because he was in love with Beatrice in life. His love for Beatrice uh, was of a particular kind. And we'll talk about that. He talks about it in uh, La Vita Nuova. If, you've had a if you uh, have a chance to read that sometime in the future, it's worth reading. 
when Beatrice shows up, when he meets her in Canto 30, she uh, shows up in all her glory. Now, um, if you uh, know the story, you know that Virgil represents human reason. And um, Beatrice represents divine revelation. And as Catholics, we are a faith and reason people. Divine revelation and um, natural law, or divine law and natural law, work together. And in their working together, they're like two wings, St. John Paul II says, on the same bird, if you will. They're like two wings that both of us buoy, uh, both of them buoy us up to God. So Dante says, my soul, such years had passed since last uh, it saw that lady and stood trembling in her presence, stupefied by the power of holy awe. And there's some truth to that. Dante um, uh, purportedly fainted every time he saw Beatrice, uh, which is one of the things probably that led to her not uh, giving him the time of day. I mean, she, she'd look over at him, he'd, he'd go down. So uh, I think uh, consciousness is an important part of any relationship. So he talks about that a bit. And he said, um, I was smitten by her. And he turned to Virgil and says, there's not within me one drop of blood unstirred. I recognize the tokens of the ancient flame. He's not just talking about Beatrice, the woman. He's talking about divine revelation itself. He's talking about sacred scripture. He's talking about tradition. These were things that he had let go of after he finished La Vida Nueva and began studying pagan philosophy. In short, his crime, his sin, is that he focused too much time studying the ancients and didn't balance it. He forgot about divine revelation. He forgot about God in pursuing um, uh, human reason uh, outside of faith, um, outside of doing whatever Christ tells him to do. He's beside himself uh, with his upset and with his grief. He had gone. Virgil had gone. Virgil, the gentle father to whom I gave my soul for its salvation. Now, Dante's still surprised by the berating he's about to receive. But I mean, all of these clues point to the fact that he was focused intently, so intently on the creation that he had lost sight of the creator. And certainly, uh, as I know from my own studies in philosophy, it is possible to see the creator through the creation entirely through natural law. But grace and the theological virtues uh, that they provide, faith, hope, and charity, require us to understand at least, or to, uh, to move toward uh, what it is that God has spoken to us and provided us through the prophets, namely sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Dante weeps for the, for the same thing that Pelagius would have weeped for had he thought about it uh, intentionally enough, this idea that he's trying to pursue salvation on his own merits, uh, rather than allow Christ, who is capital grace, who is truth, who is the fullness of, um, of faith and the fullness of reason, uh, to allow Christ to be uh, the captain of his soul. Instead, he gives it to Virgil. And so here he is, uh, seeing uh, Beatrice again. Beatrice says, Dante, don't weep yet. Though Virgil goes, do not weep yet, for soon another wound shall make you weep far hotter tears than those. Look at me well, I am she, I am Beatrice, I am divine revelation, I am divine love. How dare you make your way to this high mountain? Did you not know that here man lives in bliss? The angelic choir says, maybe uh, Beatrice, you're being a little hard on Dante. And she says, not really, because he's got to do a complete confession first. Now, Dante's already gone at this point that he's met Beatrice at the top of Mount Purgatory. He's already passed through St. Peter's Gate. He's already done 
uh, what would be considered a perfect act of uh, contrition. But he hasn't yet addressed this particular lacuna or omission, namely that he had let go of divine revelation in pursuit of human philosophy. This man potentially was so endowed from early youth that marvelous increase should have come forth from every good he sowed. But richest soil, the soonest will grow wild with bad seed and neglect. For while I stayed with him with glimpses of my face, turning my mild and youthful eyes into his very soul, I let him see their shining, and I led him by the straight way, his face to the right goal. So she said while she was on earth, he knew uh, on which side his bread was buttered. In short, divine revelation in faith, which is nothing less, nothing else than uh, doing whatever he tells you. An active response, as the dogmaticians will tell you, to divine revelation. She says, the moment I died, he turned his steps aside from the true way, pursuing the false images of good that promise what they never wholly pay. Those false images of good are creation. It's when you idolize something and you, that becomes your God rather than seeing through the created thing to the creator. Not all the inspiration I won by prayer and brought to him in dreams and meditations could call him back. So little did he care. And of course, at this particular period, Dante is exploring um, uh, the works of Aristotle, of Plotinus, of Plato. He's doing everything he can to distract himself from divine revelation, from sacred scripture, from uh, sacred tradition. So the only thing that she has in mind to do, and this is what she explains uh, to the angels, she had to let him see the damned. She had to have Virgil, who was his idol, lead him through the halls of the damned and up uh, the mountain of penitence before Dante could really fully grasp what it was he had given up. And even when he gets to the top, of the mountain and he confronts uh, Beatrice and she confronts him, um, he doesn't yet understand that he's done something wrong. And she uh, demonstrates to him that he has. And uh, the moment he drinks from the river Lethe, uh, which is the river of forgetfulness, which enables you to forget all of the sins you ever, create, uh, you ever um, experienced in life or committed in life, Dante um, says, you know, I don't remember being estranged from you. And uh, she says she's got to uh, lay this on him while he can still remember. She says, you know, what law, yawning moats or what stretch chain links lay across your path to force you to abandon all hope of pressing further on your way. Uh, you know, we have trouble sometimes getting to mass and it's just down the street. Uh, and if you think about it, the early Christians uh, got thrown to lions. Uh, for daring to go to Mass. Take Saints uh, Felicity and Perpetua, who uh, refused to give up their faith and were therefore uh, executed by being tossed to wild animals. So Dante confesses. He says, okay, fine. The things of the world's day, false pleasures and enticements, turned my steps as soon as you had ceased to light my way. So it was through her death. He's making an excuse, really. If we think of Beatrice allegorically as divine revelation, and as a um, divine love, Dante turned out the light in his pursuit of something other than, um, than God, than his race toward his own salvation. And uh, what he pursued was the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God. Beatrice explains, nothing in art of nature could call forth such joy from you as sight of that fair body which clothed me once and now sifts back to earth. And if my dying turned that highest pleasure to the very dust, what joy could still remain in mortal things for you to seek and treasure? Her death should have brought him 
uh, across the, the divide, is what she's saying. If to hear me grieves you, now raise your beard, and that's an indictment, because uh, to have a beard, that means you're old enough to know better, and let your eyes show you a greater cause for misery. And she gives him a vision of Christ. I saw her turn to face that beast, which is one person in two natures without division. And Dante realizes at that point that he should never have taken his eyes off that goal. It's like people who are in um, adoration and uh, they end up getting distracted by their iPhone when a text comes in. You know, because the goal's in front of you. It's not the, uh, the uh, device you've got in your hand. It wasn't until Jesus appeared to Saul that he was able to organize all his interpretive ability. A friend of mine, Michael Mangini, uh, pointed out as I was preparing this lecture. So sometimes we have to get uh, hit over the head with Christ before we realize what it is that uh, we have not been pursuing. Why do your desired words, she just keeps going. I mean, she beats him pretty uh, soundly with her words. Uh, why do your desired words fly so high above my power to follow their intent that I see less and less the more I try? This is Dante. And she says, they fly so high, she said, that you may know what school you followed and how far behind the truth I speak its feeble doctrines go. And see that man's ways, even at his best, are far, above, are far from God's as earth is from heaven, whose swiftest squeal turns above all the rest. And she's about to show him heaven. He's about to see that uh, and see what it is that, um, that he has embraced in losing sight of heaven. And you'll actually see that in the eighth um, sphere of heaven, when he turns around and sees the earth as a single dust mote out in space. And then he says, you know, well, you know, I have no recollection of ever being estranged from you. Now, um, he's just swam across uh, Lethe at that point, And she says, well, you know, if you lack that memory, then call to mind how you drank the waters of that river today. As certainly as smoke betrays the fire, this new forgetfulness of your wish to stray betrays the sinfulness of that desire. So what, uh, what, um, what does this tell us? So, um, this tells us that faith and reason are necessary. Uh, reason uh, without faith is Pelagian, and uh, faith without reason isn't human. God gave us, he created us in a certain way uh, based on our philosophical anthropology to be thinking persons. That is, uh, to be individual substances of a rational nature. And the importance of that is it's our rational faculty which separates us from animals that are of a non-rational nature it's our rational faculty uh, that enables us to have eternal and joyful communion with our creator. It is through that uh, that we are created in his image and likeness. It is uh, through that that we were able to understand the words of Christ when Christ came and spoke to us uh, and continues to speak to us even to the present day. So the medieval period then uh, was designed in bringing together faith and reason, designed to undull our intellects. and. Um, it was designed to uh, help us understand the fullness of our reason through the fullness of our faith. And it's called medieval. Uh, it's an, a period of scholasticism uh, because it was that period in the middle, medieval, in the middle, between the time in which philosophy was pursued as a habit of mind unencumbered by divine revelation. Okay, so those were the um, Plato, Socrates, Plotinus, and so on. And the time in which philosophy was pursued as a body of content seeking to disencumber itself from divine revelation. You can find that in Machiavelli or in um, Descartes, uh, Rousseau, Nietzsche, and so on. And sure, you say, well, Descartes said in his meditations, I've got this thing that uh, the faculty of the Sorbonne can use in order to defeat atheism. And uh, it ended up uh, becoming a gateway uh, through which uh, people like Richard Dawkins uh, passed on their way to um, rejecting God. Scholasticism, 
as the application of philosophical habit of mind to theological thought and study was so relevant because it brought together faith, which is our active response to divine revelation, and reason, which is a discursive faculty. And I can get a little bit closer on what reason is uh, through St. John Paul II's Fidesit Ratio. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. God has placed on the human heart a desire to know the truth in a word to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. The light of natural reason, which is nothing else than an imprint on us of the divine light, whereby we discern what is good and what is evil, which is the function of natural law. So I'm quoting from St. Thomas here. In this case, it's the first part of the second part question 91, and that's where he talks about uh, the different kinds of law. Uh, Natural law is itself nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. And you can see this um, in the Decalogue. There's a lot of stuff in the uh, sacred scripture that's drawn right out of natural law. It's stuff we could figure out on our own. Uh, Don't have other gods before before God. Don't uh, covet uh, your neighbor's wife. Don't steal. You know, that kind of stuff. Because even the thief knows that stealing is wrong, uh, according to Charles Rice uh, says in his book, 50 Questions on Natural Law. Even the thief knows that stealing is wrong when somebody steals from the thief. So um, rational creatures, natural law is promulgated by the very fact that God instilled it into man's mind so as to be known by him naturally. Concerning faith, uh, the clearest definition of faith uh, outside of Hebrews 11.1, in which it's the substance of things hoped for, the clearest definition of faith well, we find in, or at least the most succinct, in John 2, 5, uh, where Mary turns to the, um, uh, to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Faith as an active response to divine revelation involves our doing whatever he, Christ, tells us. And he's told us a lot of stuff. Um, uh, the greatest of the commandments, uh, where all other foot, uh, commandments are footnotes, is uh, love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. A clearer statement of that is Luke 10, 27, where both of them are together in one verse. Adherence to divine law is just that, then, as St. Thomas explains. By the natural law, the eternal law is participated proportionally to the capacity of human nature, but to his supernatural end, man needs to be directed in yet a higher way. That higher way is the, um, is, uh, the eternal law, divine law, in which man shares more perfectly in the eternal law. So we've got two wings. Uh, We fly with both. So where does this leave us? What are our takeaways? Faith and reason are the peanut butter and chocolate of the true way. Scholasticism is the only point in the history of philosophy that gave us a common sense approach to understanding who we are as human persons endowed with both a natural and a supernatural end. The Aristotelian Thomistic synthesis, that's where um, St. Thomas takes Aristotle and uh, synthesizes it with... um, our faith with our uh, sacred scripture, our tradition, and our teachings uh, of the church, uh, what it is that the magisterium has presented to us, our church leaders, through the popes and through the bishops. Uh, The Aristotelian uh, Thomistic synthesis was a common sense move toward a realistic understanding of our relationship with both God and man, providing us with a method to fulfill that otherwise cryptic but most important commandment of Jesus to love God with all our heart soul, strength, and mind to love our neighbor as ourself. Really, that's all you have to do. If you do that, you're perfect. And if you uh, do it with somebody else who's also doing it, then you're perfect together. Number three, 
the capacity for the rational creature to participate in the eternal law of God, indeed the very capacity that enables joyful communion with our creator, requires an active response to divine revelation, which we know is faith. And the fourth takeaway is that Dante's encounter with Beatrice is a demonstration of how grace perfects nature and how divine revelation and love carry to completion the work that man's rational nature begins in him. And if we are talking about uh, coming up on Divine Mercy Sunday, Divine Mercy, as Father Aaron, uh, requires that the sinner acknowledge that he's a sinner. Uh, we see that in the encounter with uh, Dante and Beatrice and the particular kind of sin, which is a, a sin of Pelagianism, uh, of which Dante was guilty. If ever we think we have all the answers and can do it alone, then we are also entering into that sin. And the way out is, uh, as uh, Benedict Ashley says, um, in terms of uh, the way out of a dead faith, he says even a dead faith, uh, a faith where we're not doing whatever Christ tells us to do, we're not actively responding to divine revelation, but we understand the gospel and we accept it, we're just not doing it. That's a dead faith, according to St. James. Uh, Benedict Ashley says, um, but even a dead faith can be salvific because at some point uh, we may pay attention, like the, the son in the parable, uh, to what it is the father has told us and actually start doing it and actually start living a faith uh, that we had uh, uh, previously or heretofore rejected. So that's the end of uh, today's presentation, and that gets you into the sense of what it is that we're going to be studying for the next five weeks beyond this one, uh, which is what it means for Dante to enter through that dark wood, a vision of uh, the damned, why Beatrice uh, had him do it, and what it means for him to climb the mountain, uh, meet her, uh, receive her counsel, and then from there, continue his journey directly into the mind of God and how it was possible, uh, after all that, for him to be saved. And if you can understand it through Dante, you can understand it in yourself. And that is why Dante is such an important read um, in our day, even though uh, he was writing 700 years ago. So I'm going to look at the, uh, at the chat room, and um, I'm going to scroll through. I noticed... Uh, that uh, you guys are very uh, prolific chatters, and it delights me, and uh, you should do it uh, frequently uh, over the next five weeks. Um, is there anything in here that, um, that I can address? Uh, was Beatrice really a saint or a made-up character in his poem? She was real. Um, uh, I, I uh, do not believe that anybody's actually canonized her. Uh, but in Dante's mind, she was a... Uh, uh, in order for her to be the one that leads him through heaven, uh, he had to canonize her um, uh, through his poetic license. Uh, she was a real woman. Her name was uh, Beatrice Portinari, and uh, she ended up marrying a banker named Simone uh, de Bardai. Uh, but she, uh, just like Dante, they were both betrothed to their future spouses at a very young age, something like 12 or 13 or 14. So they didn't really have an opportunity to get together. So Dante, um, even though he had four children with his wife, uh, Gemma Donati, uh, was never really into Gemma as much as he was into uh, Beatrice. And uh, Gemma complains about this in her, um, in her letters to her mom. 
uh, if the letters are real. You know, uh, I like to think that they are, uh, simply because they explain so much. Uh, Gemma complains that uh, all Dante wants to do is come home and rant about people he doesn't like and assign them to various places in hell. And she says it's not enough that he puts them in hell. He has to come uh, spend a lot of time making up weird torments for them. Uh, and it's kind of funny to think of her writing all this to her mom saying, you know, I just don't know what to do with this guy. It's pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, she was a real woman. Uh, there is a St. Beatrice. Uh, she's somebody else, I think. Uh, Dante will tell you um, that he wrote with real characters in mind because they were, uh, they were things that Florentinians at the time could get their mind around. So they were archetypes. So when he talks about Chiaco in the third uh, circle of hell, everybody knew Chiaco. And they could map their mind onto it and say, okay, well, this guy, he just hung around, he didn't do anything, and he ate a lot, and he got fat. And then he died uh, probably from uh, high cholesterol or something like that. Uh, diabetes or, or heart um, failure. Dante um, isn't consigning anyone in particular to hell because he hates them, but he's working with uh, archetypes. And in some cases, he did hate them. Like he puts Bonif uh, Bonif Pope Boniface, um, Pope Boniface the Eighth. He uh, has um, Nicholas the Third waiting for him uh, when they get down to the eighth circle. And Nicholas the Third, uh, he's got his. Uh, you can see from uh, Chiardi's uh, book cover. Uh, the uh, Dore illustration. He's got um, Dante as Nicholas III face down in a hole in a inversion of a baptismal font, and um, his just his legs are sticking up. And he hears this voice: "Is that you, Bonifacio? You're not supposed to be here for another three years." And Dante says, "No, no, no, no. You spoke about Dante overemphasizing philosophy. Do you think he was influenced by Boethius? Yes, he was. Um, and you can see that in La Vita Nuova." Um, uh, Boethius, or some people pronounce him Batius, um, was the uh, uh, first uh, Christian scholastic. And um, he was sentenced to death uh, and wrote uh, in his prison a work called On the Consolation of Philosophy. And so you can see when you get to heaven, into the fourth sphere of heaven, uh, you can see he's got um, uh, Boethius there in the fourth sphere. And uh, if you look at how he places people, uh, go to Limbo and look at all the people he names and go to the fourth sphere of heaven and look at all the people he names. That's his bibliography. Uh, was St. Lucy also a placeholder for someone in his life where he's referring, no, he's referring to the real St. Lucy in that one. Um, so uh, simply because of who she was uh, represented, uh, the saint of uh, light, of blindness. So somebody who could be a good intermediary between Mary and Beatrice. And Beatrice, if she represents divine love and revelation, uh, wouldn't have need the, needed light to see. He would have needed, like Ananias gave uh, St. Paul, um, the blindness to fall from his eyes if he was going to be able to see anything at all in what Beatrice told him. And of course, if you follow the flow of the poem, uh, Dante almost gets it, uh, but doesn't fully get it until uh, he's hit over the head with it by Beatrice when he gets all the way up the mountain into the Garden of Eden. From LP, during the time of Dante, was the Divine Comedy ever revered or liked? Was it only uh, way later? Uh, during the time of Dante, it was, it was called just the comedy. It was called the Divine Comedy later. Uh, but the comedy, um, he published uh, the uh, Inferno in 1314, and uh, he died seven years later. So he had time in 1315 to publish the Purgatorio, and then in 1321, before he died, to publish the Paradiso. And he, uh, he had finished the Paradiso in 1320. So in that seven-year span, he was revered. Uh, he used to walk through the streets of uh, Ravenna, and the story is that uh, children would run up to him and grab the hem of his uh, cloak. Uh, 
because they thought, hey, this guy was a guy who's been to the afterlife. He's been through hell and he's been through purgatory. Um, he hadn't yet finished the uh, uh, Paradiso at the time. Uh, but um, he says at the very beginning of, uh, of the Inferno, he says, look, I don't know if I can take this journey. This is Canto 2. He says, I'm not St. Peter. I'm not uh, Neus. I'm not St. Paul. So he's got a pagan example and he's got a, um, a, sacred, a scriptural example. Uh, Aeneas went to the underworld to find his father, and that's uh, what Virgil wrote about. And St. Paul, according to the, um, to the apocalypse of St. Paul, uh, actually went uh, into heaven. Uh, but Paul talks about that in, um, in the Second Corinthians anyway. He says, you know, I know a guy who uh, about 14 years ago, I don't know in the body or if not, actually uh, went to the third heaven. And so in that way, he's referencing both of these people who actually did take a trip into the underworld. So did people in his time believe your soul could actually move from inferno to purgatory? No, no. Hell was everlasting and eternal damnation. There was absolutely no way anybody going into hell would get out. And Dante points this out in uh, the ninth circle of hell. When he says to one guy, he says, you know, if you'll tell me who you are, I promise I won't tell anybody. And if I do uh, ever tell anybody, then may I descend to the last level of ice? Well, the soul is like, okay, nobody would want to go down there. And he goes ahead and gives up uh, uh, the information that Dante's looking for. And so Dante continues his journey, descends to the last level of ice, and then grabs hold of Satan's shanks, and then climbs down Satan's leg to the very center point of Earth, uh, which is the midpoint of where Satan is. And then uh, Virgil turns him over, and they climb all the way up into purgatory. So when uh, they get to purgatory, Cato sees them, who's the guardian of the shore of purgatory and is completely floored. He's like, this has never happened. So Dante points out that, uh, that nobody, that it, it was not possible to escape from hell once you were there. And the people in hell don't want to escape from hell. As uh, St. Augustine points out, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. People place themselves there, and God allows them to, because they would prefer their will to be done than God's will to be done. And uh, that, was, uh, that was understood in Dante's time. Um, what was the conception of the afterlife before Dante's work uh, is the same. I mean, um, people knew that there was a hell, they knew there was a purgatory, and they knew there was a heaven. And that's what was the church was teaching. Remember, the church had had, uh, before Dante showed up, 1,300 years to work out its theology through all of the councils uh, and everything leading up to Dante's life. I mean, that's, that's what people knew. Uh, now, not all of them accepted it, and so you end up with um, schismatic uh, uh, branches of the faith. So you can see those in the, one of the greatest schisms was uh, uh, Islam. From Amanda, is the view of purgatory as a mountain original to Dante? Maybe. I want to say Dante was highly influenced by his source material, so he probably, um, he probably picked that up from somewhere else. Uh, but you can see like um, uh, the image has stuck with us, even in popular literature. Have you ever seen uh, uh, Robert De Niro in The Mission, where he takes all his armor up to the top of a mountain and drops it off? Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Blessed Mother Mary, we thank you for your inspiration uh, in Dante's life um, and in our lives presently as our most powerful intercessor. We ask your blessing upon our professor, our, our instructor of this course, upon his family, upon all of us who are dealing with the struggles of today. Um, open up our hearts with your spouse, the Holy Spirit, to enter more deeply into understanding the love of your son, Jesus, into embracing um, our Catholic faith at a deeper level.
We ask all this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.